0: North Hope Radio. Amazing show. We're waiting for my co-host Jay Logan to actually dial in, but while we do that, we're going to go on to a wonderful set of uh, pieces of news today. Uh, Jay will be dialing in from Tokyo, which is amazing because we've done this show from Alaska, from France, from London, you know so this is pretty exciting. So it's great to be back on Listen give live radio with all of you today. you know as we said, our co-host is still out in Japan and he's uh, coming in live from Tokyo shortly. Today we have a very special guest, which is Nyla Moisadis of Writers Blog, a unique service providing opportunities for newly published authors. So, you know, one of the things that's uh, been going on, as you all know, is that there's a lot of things circling, uh, circulating right now about education, how do we improve it, um, things of that nature. And, you know, one, something that's recently uh, taken place over in Japan, which is from one of our uh, friends, uh, Mr. Jay Logan himself, I believe he's having somewhat of technical difficulties, but we'll go ahead and share about that. This is the this is details from newsonjapan.com. And, you know, here we have talked about that if a parent actually hits a child, it's considered wrong. You know, um, which, you know, some people agree with and some people disagree with. And back in, you know, early times here in the United States, it was a really the time when teachers were actually allowed to discipline children as well in the Catholic schools. Um, I remember experiencing that myself. And it was called positive punishment. Now, in Japan, that still goes on. All right? Now, sometimes we have to delineate between. What corporal punishment is to each culture, to each country, and in this case, um you know there was a situation where kids had actually been hurt, experienced being hurt or in japan, and about it, it is said that about six thousand seven hundred and twenty one teachers across Japan have used corporal punishment in some way. Now, the problem is that some kids are actually getting hurt which is not a good thing. Not a good well, thing. Okay. Not a good thing at all. So we're trying to determine here is, you know, do you consider that here a fair a fair assessment or a fair situation? You know, is it okay for children to be hit? Is that okay? I mean really, when we look at this, we have to really take a look at this, you know, is it okay for children to be Sit in, in the classroom because a teacher seems it okay or not okay. And the reason why this situation came up in Japan is because recently one of the te- one of the teachers who was a coach to one of the students was apparently abusing a child, and the child committed suicide. So again, we have to look at is corporal punishment something that is fair or okay, you know, to use, you know. And um, this is something that. There's no way for us to gauge if that is okay, you know. Um, so, and going on from there, one of the things that we would like to talk about further is beef Audio. So just recently, as you know, it's been the craze over the summer, completely the craze over the summer, about the fact that beef Audio has taken a higher share than market they actually have 51% of the market right now for Dr. Dre and his deep partnership. And so recently, they want to take even more of the market. What they're intending to do is buy out their partner, HTC, and see what share of the market they can go into further because what they have actually done is found a new partner to work with. So that's just another area in our tech is but, you know, one of the things I want to know is I've listened on Beats uh, Audio and we've actually had Kevin Lee, one of the partners, Dr. Gray, on this on this show. And at that time it was called Parents, Kids, music, and we were talking about the music that kids and uh, parents listen to, so I guess that's very appropriate for what they're doing here together in partnership. But, you know, what I do like about Beats Audio is that they have a tiered effect, which you can actually have, you know, just to hang out those, Earphones that are cushioned on the ear, which I kind of like myself, and they also have uh, different levels. Like you can, you know, you have that, and then you have the other ones that are used for music, and then the other ones I like. You know, let's say you're at home with your, you know, your family members, and you have children, and you kind of want to block out their noise for a while. You can use those to actually have the noise canceling effects as well. But they're also used in the studio, so that's you know one of the things that's kind of fun and knowing about that. so, you know, that's one of the things that we are looking forward to. So, you know, without further ado, I do believe that we have our guests on. Good afternoon. Is that Nyla? Hi, Gail. How are you? Hi. How are you, Nyla? We are so happy good, to have show here. I'm thrilled to be here. Uh, Thank you. Nyla, if you wouldn't mind, just so that we can hear you a little higher and our audience can 100% uh, get all the information that you are about to, you know, share with us, um, is it possible for you to uh, lift up your volume where you are?
1: Sure. Let me try this a little bit. Do you hear me any better now?
0: Yes, it's great. Thank you so much. So welcome to the show, Nyla.
1: Thank you.
0: Okay, and you know, for our audience members who would like to ask Nyla any questions, please feel free to dial in to 661-244-9800 and press 1 to be added to the audience queue. Now, along with the show. Nyla, we're so glad to have you here. Would you start by sharing with our audience, what is Writer's Block? But don't tell too much so that we can tell our audience more, more information as you go along. But what is Writer's Block exactly? Sure, sure. So I was actually a
1: writing student at Columbia University. They have an incredible writing program. I was having a really wonderful experience. And I decided to write my first novel. And I realized very quickly that writing the novel was only about a fourth of the challenge. When I tried to publish it, I think I wrote about 95 different individualized query letters. I sent them out. I waited three months. I didn't hear back. I think over the course of the next six months, I received three completely unpersonalized rejection letters and nothing from everyone else.
0: Wow. That's a little
1: bit of the backstory. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely realized pretty quickly that if I was not even being rejected, if they didn't even have an opportunity to read the manuscript or to read the query letter, that the publishers must be struggling So, you know, I took some time. I went and I worked at Simon & Schuster. It was an incredible experience. Um, I actually really changed my perspective because when you're doing it from a, when you're approaching the poem from uh, from a writer's perspective, you're kind of angry. You want your piece to be published. You don't really think about it from the perspective that the publisher might actually be having a very hard time, not have the resources to go through all the manuscripts, might be receiving many more manuscripts than they can even hope to go through. Um, And when I was at Simon & Schuster, I realized that that was exactly the case. Uh, You know, I had found 10,000 unsolicited manuscripts over the course of the last year. I don't even know if that was all of them. Um, You know, the publishing houses simply don't have enough time to go through all of these undiscovered writers and figure out which of these books they can give a chance.
0: So that was a little bit of the backdrop. Go ahead, go ahead. you You know, that brings us on to... You know, really the next question, which is what you went into, is I would love to know what has you start Writer's Block uh, personally. And, and are we pronouncing that correctly, Writer's Block? Yes, yes. Um, okay. You know, we I spent a lot
1: of time after my time at Writer's Block talking to other writing students at Columbia, you know, MSA students, professors, uh, basically anyone who would listen to me and kind of getting a sense of what their problems were and what their needs were in the space. And I started hearing that the majority of writers had either attempted to write a novel or were writing a novel. Um, I was sp- I was speaking at the time mostly to fiction just because it was my major, um, so that's why I say novels. Um, during that time, they said to me, not only had they written the novels, but they hadn't had an opportunity to actually get it edited. So that was the first issue. Number two... They were very fearful of trying to publicize the book on their own. You know, they didn't have the credibility or the validation, the stamp that comes along with a conventional publisher, and they didn't have the experience to kind of attack the problem on their own. And finally, um, they didn't really want to go through the process of packaging the book, dealing with the book cover, preparing it aesthetically, didn't know how to go about printing or publishing it digitally. And so I started hearing the same problems from a lot of people. And a lot of the, the thought that I had was there is a tremendous amount of untapped talent in the literary market. There are so many writers out there that are being completely overlooked. And my thought process was, how do we get those writers in the spotlight to prove their potential through their writing?
0: What if there was a way that
1: instead of waiting three to five years to apply for an agent to maybe get the okay from the agent? You know, the response rate for agents is usually under 4%. Um, if you get confirmed by an agent, then you have to get picked up by a publisher And even then, the book might not do well. So I said, okay, what if we're able to actually remove all those years and test the potential of the manuscript by putting it in front of the largest audience possible right at the beginning,
0: improving the potential that way? Wow. Um, This is great. Wow. So you really did your homework, okay?
1: It was a a lot
0: of homework in there, yes. You know, um, I have to say this to the audience. I met Nyla at a conference, and um, I was so impressed with her. Uh, and, Nyla, I have to say that, you know, I know a lot of times we use that when we meet people, but I think uh, your spirit, and I think I share that with you, you have the most beautiful spirit of a person that I've met in many years.
2: Oh, and it thank was very, you so
0: much. Yeah, it was very kind. And I really want our audience members who are very serious to go to Writer's blog, which is dot Writer's Block with a Q, W R I D E R S V L O Q dot com, Writer's Block on Facebook, and Writer's Block on um, Twitter, because she has a very unusual service that really supports people in a way that is just not being uh, done right now. Um, I'm going to go on to the next question at the same time. Uh, Naila, sure. My co host is coming in from Tokyo and had a bit of a technology breakdown here. So we're going to bring him on. Sure. Jay, how hello, are you? hi, hi how are you? Oh, hi, Nyla. Good to meet you. <laughs> Wonderful. How are you? Nice to meet you. I'm Jay, like, we're going to have to ask yeah. you to do the same thing. Um, we need to just have you come up in your volume a little bit, if you wouldn't mind. Okay. Okay. So, um, Nyla, we have a series of questions we're asking, and so I'm just going to go on and ask the next question, and then Jay will be asking the question after that. Okay? Um, sure. And I would like to know, you know, with writer's block, can any writer join or should they have a built-in fan base prior to joining writer's block?
1: No, no, absolutely not. So any writer can come to us um, with a completed manuscript. That's really the only thing we ask, uh, that they've kind of completed their entire thought process and gotten it down at paper. It can be as completed as possible. You know, and it's kind of, It doesn't have to be edited. Um, The more edited it is, the quicker it will move along for the author. But as long as it's a complete manuscript, that's pretty much all you need. Uh, Our our goal is to kind of build that fan base, so you definitely don't need a fan base.
0: Okay. Jay, I know you had a question for her. Yes, and I was wondering,
2: um, being an author, does the author have to work with you to sell their book to the public, or does writer's blogs actually do all the work? That's uh, a very, very, very
0: good question. Yeah. So the way that
1: Writer's Block works, we actually have book reps that choose the books that they want to work on. So we have a book rep who literally comes in, reads through the manuscripts, and says, I want to work on this book directly with the author. That book rep kind of acts like a conventional editor, I would say, in some regards. Um, they work directly with the author to help edit the piece. They come up with a kind of brief publicity plan that then we execute as a team with the book rep and with the author depending on how involved they want to be. So some authors are a little more shy. You know, we've definitely come into contact with authors who are more introverted who don't feel that comfortable, uh, who don't want to really pull in their family and friends. Maybe they're writing under a pseudonym. That's fine as well. It really depends. We kind of cater the marketing plan depending on the author and their comfort zone. Um, I, we've definitely had authors who were extremely, extremely excited about publicity and kind of got more involved than we even expected, which is great as well. It can go
0: either way. Interesting, very interesting. You know, I heard you, Nyla, this was not part of our question, but I heard you say book reps. So um, we'll mm-hmm. ask you a little bit later about that. You know, Nyla, people think all writing is the same. Would You, you know, and, and with today's Internet and everything, people think that, you know, being a reporter, being a blogger, and everything is the same. Would you please explain to our audience, let's say a blogger for the New York Times, and I am mean a blogger, not a reporter. A blogger for the New York sure. Times or Huffington Post wrote a long article of blog, which could be the size mm-hmm. of a book, versus what writer's blog constitutes a book for download. Would you explain the difference? Sure. Because a lot of people don't realize the difference.
1: Yeah, so, I mean, we would even work with bloggers, so I can't claim, for us, there is not an enormous difference in what we're willing to publish. We're looking at nonfiction, we're looking at fiction, we're looking at collections of blog pieces. Um, you know, we're even working right now with an author who's trying to put a collection together of her own uh, kind of short essays. Um, really, in the conventional publishing market, it's kind of divided by nonfiction, fiction, um, and poetry, and within those three genres, you have other breakdowns. Obviously, the books that tend to sell the best are either memoir, uh, biographical pieces that are nonfiction, or fantasy, romance, or sci-fi novels in the fiction category. Um, You know, for us, we actually have an added advantage because Writer's Block only is publishing these books digitally, and that is a very, very big difference, what we're doing. Our goal is really just to be the first step in publication. We believe that we can create additional opportunities than what an author can achieve on their own publishing their book. And our goal is to use that digital publication to prove the potential of the piece to then create additional opportunities. So in the long run, we hope that we're able to publish a book and gather enough of a fan base that then a conventional publisher will come in, pick up the book, and maybe offer that author a print deal, if the author wants to take it. So we really do view ourselves as a as a book accelerator, that first step in publication. I don't think that we're a conventional publisher in many regards, but we really do see the value add of a conventional publisher if an author would like to work with them in the long
2: run. Got it. Nala, I have a, a good question. I was I was wondering in today's market, um, what do you think is missing today in publishing?
1: That's a great question. Um, So if you look at the music industry, I think the music industry is a good example because 10 years (laughs) ago, Napster had caused, you know, a tremendous amount of problems. Um, But today, Spotify is such a popular model because music automatically conformed. They said, you know what, we can't keep fighting it. People are going to be downloading music illegally. So we might as well just offer them a portal where by incentive instead of by stick, you know, they want to work with us. So instead of punishing them for breaking the rule, why don't we incentivize them to actually download the music and pay? So, you know, that's kind of how those models took off, like Spotify, um, Pandora. You know, in the publishing industry, I think the real issue that we're facing is that people don't, people are feeling a little bit slower to conform. They don't really want to shift. So what we're seeing is a much slower move into that kind of, Uh, I mean, I think this is where the problem is kind of of taking off. Um, You know, specifically you're seeing publishers who want to publish books and they want to say, okay, we're going to go digital. But I think a lot of things are missing from conventional publishing. For example, you know, music, when a new song or a new album is coming out by a big-name musician or by a rapper or by, you know, an R.E.B. musician, they prepare for months. They have an entire publicity plan. The majority of the funds go into publicity, not into production. You know, the production is coming out of the musician side. And what ends up happening, they focus on the publicity to make sure the sales actually match the production needs. In most cases, I think now even music loses a lot of money, um, but not as much as publishing. I mean, the publishing model, you have the majority of books that a publishing house is publishing is losing money for the house. And you have one to ten, you know, depending on uh, how big the house is, that are these huge novels, the Harry Potters, the Fifty Shades of Grey, that are actually making up all the losses. So, I mean, I largely believe that the model that's missing right now in conventional publishing is the ability to understand that we have to adopt more of a publicity plan. You know, there are niche markets, so maybe books that you have that aren't selling as well, the mid-range books in particular, have large audiences that the publishers are just not aware of or are not tapping into, you know, I think now publishing houses are starting to see those changes. They're either merging or they're hiring, like, larger publicity firms or larger publicity teams. I think that publicity needs to go hand-in-hand with the editing and the production of the book, which a lot of authors don't want to hear because they want to believe that, you know, it's just the writing process and if you put a book that's really strong out there, it'll take off. But it's just not the case today. Too much content. It's an oversaturated market.
0: Well, Nyla, all I can say is, I, I, I ha- you know, we're, not, we're, we're trying to keep this, you know, concise for you. But I have to ask you this because, as Jay will tell you, he's a producer, and we, I, we've also, I've worked on the business side of the music industry for many, for many years as well as film, television, everything else. And you seem to have a good understanding of the music industry. Just as a side question, have you been involved in that industry?
1: So, actually, I have never been involved with music. I've been involved with film. Um, I had worked at Film London, on just different, on film sets, and I realized the way it's also happening on the film crew sets. Um, you know, film is another interesting genre because you have movies like horror movies that have very, very low budget that are creating, you know, in really, really large amounts of revenue, and then you have these huge, big-budget movies that are costing so much money. I mean, I think for a lot of the arts, it's actually pretty similar. So my background, I think I uh, definitely experimented in film for a while before I realized the similarities between film and music and writing and publishing.
0: Wow. Well, we definitely, if you come on at a later time, we'd love to see, uh, hear more about that and your experience there. And I'm, I'm going to go on to the next question here, which is, you know, uh, we I saw something on Twitter that you had that was pretty interesting. And my 14-year-old niece works in a library because she, she loves writing. All right? And she's uh People have questioned whether she's a child. Some people see to, to New York magazine, And she, in, okay. on Twitter, you talk about, um, are the days gone of young people and books. I definitely, okay. there's something that I talk all the time about. We want to know your thoughts on that.
1: I think a lot of people now are debating and they keep putting uh, books, print books, and e-books at odds with each other, you know, and they believe that it's one or the other. I don't think that's the way that it's going to go. I'd like to believe I mean, I think print books are obviously less convenient. Um, They're not as easy. At the end of the day, we're all living in New York. (laughs) A lot of writers are living in New York right now. You know, me and my friends are living in New York, and you end up in a situation where your entire apartment is filled with books and your apartment is the size of a box. So e-books have some added convenience in that they all just fill up an iPad, you know, or they fill up a Kindle. Now, on the other hand, a lot of us really enjoy books for their sentimental value or just enjoy reading from a book or the paper book, the experience that you have, the smell of a book when you pick it up and you know it's been a library for decades. Um, I don't believe that we're going to lose that. I just think that we need to be smarter about how we print, so almost a more uh, sustainable approach but also a smarter business approach to printing. Why not prove the value of a book electronically first determine whether or not the book has enough value in order to print it, determine exactly how many prints you need or just a better guess, a better estimation, because currently the publishers are actually guessing on those numbers. Um, you know, Use the demographic that you've established in digitally publishing a book in order to decide exactly how much you need in actually printing it. So I think print books and digital books go much more hand-in-hand hand than people want to believe.
0: That's that's very interesting because um, it's so funny. Jay would I think can chime in here. We've heard my niece. She actually did a video for our our network here that talks about the feel and the smell of the book. Exact words that she used. And you know, yeah. um, our thoughts were for younger people. Maybe more print should be done because young people do like that, the feel of the finishing and the ending, knowing that they have accomplished something. You know, um, Jay. I know you have a that's question for it. her um,
2: no, no, um, Nala, I want to know what do you think about young people and books in the school. Mm-hmm. What's your, I mean, um, I think today. Uh, oh, go on, go on. No, I just want to know what you, what are feeling was about you know young people and books in the school as as today's March in today's day school. Should, should we have these books there? Should everything be digital? Um, what's your take.
1: I mean, it's a rough question because on one hand you say, you know what, the the digital book, especially in schools that are actually not able – if you're going to buy something for a school that's lower budget, schools that are uh, having a rougher time financially, the truth is if you're able to buy them anything electronically, they might have a greater advantage because they can download more books. Books are cheaper digitally. They're able to consume more content, uh, which should lead to a greater education. I mean, I think that there is a balance between the two. I think that, um, I, I do believe that in the schools it's going to start becoming all digital. It's just going to be easier for students instead of having to carry backpacks and have back problems that are going to be largely digital. I already see my uh, nephews and nieces already playing with us or constantly on iPads. But I also think it's a little scary. Um, you see the younger generations know how to use an iPad and not recognize books. And that is a little bit frightening. Uh, you know, becoming too consumed with electronics. I think that our attention span has become a lot shorter. You know, books that were classics in the past might be too slow now by today's standards because people are used to consuming content very rapidly. to you know, uh, different digital mediums such as YouTube where you can consu- you consume content immediately. It's harder to want to sit down and read a book when you have all these other outlets. So, I mean, I'm, I hope, I'd like to say that I hope that there will be a combination. Maybe people will be keeping books for aesthetic value in schools. Um, I believe that they should. I think that learning to read from a paper book is pretty similar to what Gil was saying. You know, the idea of feeling that you're completing a book, that idea of completion and success and knowing that you completed something that you started is really important for a kid. You know, you can kind of be reading the book and turning the pages, and you know when it's going to end. And that idea of beginning and end is huge to someone who's younger because they don't want to know. They want to know when it's ending. You know, they want to know when they're there. So, I mean, I believe that maybe we should be teaching kids off of paper books just so that they can get that satisfaction of reading a book, and once it's become habit, they'll be transitioning into electronic books, which is easier.
0: So, again, I believe it's probably a marriage of the two.
1: Oh, wow. I mean, oh.
0: it, 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 I, I'm laughing, Mayla, because uh, Jay and I have this conversation all the time, and it's like you, we are we we agree so much with you. Um do you, oh wow, I just can't believe what you said, because I do believe that there's. it is a little scary when kids are almost, they can become ADD from just being on electronics, you know, yeah. and yeah. that's a very big concern, you know. One of the things I'd like to ask you is does writer's block um, publish books for young people? Sure. So uh,
1: predominantly right now we're going to be releasing about 50 books in the next year, Um Most of those books are actually young adult. Um, We have a couple children's books that we're toying with. I'm a little bit nervous about going children's books digitally, but now we're actually talking to a pretty big-name publisher, um, which we can't disclose quite yet who, but about partnering up. So if we receive the book that we think does well or we publish a book that does well, then they would be interested in picking it up for a print deal. So already that kind of union is forming. Um, So we're definitely toying with the idea. I think young adult is much more popular digitally then children's books, because of the fact that I said you know kids usually want to hold the book and kind of experience illustrations in their hands, but that's not to say that you can't use the digital medium in order to determine which children's books to pass on which to print
2: hmm. um, also if you if you, if you do what is if you do uh, you know, publish books for young people, what is the criteria mm-hmm. for young people to to submit? You know, submit their work to your site, and if you do not, where can they go submit their work?
1: So we don't actually ever choose. So every manuscript that comes through to us, we don't determine whether or not we're publishing it. A book rep that we have hired just has to enjoy that book. So we don't think that we're authorities on what's a good book and what's not. I think it's very difficult to determine uh, what's going to take off in the market and who the audience is. I mean, I think every book has an audience. It's much more a question of finding the right person to help you promote and kind of get that book out there that's kind of how we envision ourselves. So, you know, children's books, young adult books, I think they differentiate themselves from other books because they largely push a moral. You know, a lot of books do, but when you get into more literary fiction, the moral is a little more hidden or subtle or sometimes doesn't exist at all. It's just telling a story. The young adult and children's books tend to be extremely strong morals, strong emotions, strong protagonists, um... We, for us, we don't determine whether we think a, a book is good or not. We just see whether or not a book graph wants to represent it. And as long as someone wants to represent it, then you're in.
0: Interesting. You know, um, I just had, Jay, I just had one quick question before I go into this other question with Nyla. Nyla, you know, um, you talked about young people. When we talk, I think what Jay and I are kind of uh, alluding to is I know that we talked about young adults. We're actually talking about young teens anywhere between 12 and 16. Do you think their books,
1: too, like, you know, as long as the book rep likes it? Absolutely. I mean, the thing is, ironically today, you know, the teens between 12 and 15 are more able to use an iPad and an iPhone to download that content than, you know, the community between 50 and 60. So you end up with a larger demographic. These kids have grown up on technology. So we definitely, we, we don't have an age that we uh, we represent all books, all genres, all ages. You know, it's more about finding someone who's enjoying that story well enough, you know, enough that they basically we want to represent it. Wow.
0: Well, one of the questions I had is we know you had a Kickstarter campaign, and you were really successful. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to put it out there. I'm going to be a little uh, slang here for a minute. We're going to say you kicked butt. Uh, Would you share with our audience the success of this and and give them a little bird's-eye view of some details and how they can do what you did to have the same success. Sure. You know, Kickstarter
1: um, Kickstarter has become a part of popular culture, at least in the technology area. People have decided they want to go after a project. They use Kickstarter and they achieve their goals. The issue is that there is a lot of work happening behind the scenes, I think, that people aren't really aware of. We launched a Kickstarter campaign to raise $15,000 to do a book tour um, with mostly a literary tour with eight of our authors from our site um, to kind of just take them around to different cities in the Northeast. It was an incredible experience,
0: um,
1: but it was also a tremendous amount of work, you know, in order to actually get enough publicity, because you have to think to yourself, the amount of content that's on the Internet, you have to say, how would I stumble upon a Kickstarter project? It either has to be referred to you by a friend, or you have to accidentally stumble upon it, which is very rare, or you have to be on Kickstarter looking for it, which is even rarer, Or there has to be a significant amount of publicity behind it. So you have to be contacting bloggers and press constantly and making sure it gets in front of the right audience. And ironically, that's largely what we do at Writer's Block to get these books recognized as well. So it was definitely a very educational experience launching a Kickstarter campaign, realizing exactly how much work goes into getting in front of the right people and realizing how many people out there wanted the same things that we wanted for writers, how many people wanted writers that were undiscovered to be discovered and to get more of that content into their hands by uh, overlooked authors.
0: Well, how did, the question is, too, how did you go about your Kickstarter campaign? How did you get people to, to come to your page? Did you know What was yeah. the nuances you used so that other people who are starting their uh, Kickstarter uh, campaigns Know what to do because I understand sometimes, like, summer is not a good time because you know people are not into it. Yes, on the various panels. No, can you give them a yeah. little bit some pointers here because a lot of people don't know they you sure. can on Kickstarter and think, Oh, I'm going to make money today, and Kickstarter is going to match me.
1: So, I mean, I think a couple main things about Kickstarter tips that I would say make your goal low. Um, I even think that our goal is too high because. The truth is, Kickstarter, you only get the money if you raise the full amount, but what people don't realize is it's actually advantageous to have your goal lower because if you surpass your goal, if we had made it for 5000 and we had surpassed our goal 300%, it would have been higher on Kickstarter's radar and they would have even promoted it more because they are not gauging the success of your project by the amount that you raise but by the percentage that you raise because it's literally you saying to them, this is how much we thought we would raise and this is how much better we are than we thought. So that's one really big one. Um, Number two, Kickstarter is a full-time job. Like, you have to be at your email for 30 days if you choose the 30 days. I prefer 30 days to 60 because, you know, you can really make any days. But I prefer a month because it gives you enough time to do the job right, but not so much that people forget about you. Um, You know, you definitely want to contribute to a couple other Kickstarter campaigns before you begin so you know what you're doing, so you actually understand the mission of Kickstarter and kind of get involved in that community. Uh, And also, I mean, I think the more attention that you can bring to your Kickstarter campaign in the first couple of days that it's up, the better. Because, again, if you achieve enormous success in the first couple of days, you're even higher on Kickstarter's radar, and they're going to spread you more as well. It definitely is a kind of joint mission of figuring out exactly how many days you want to run the campaign, how much you want to make it for. You know, my big tips are keep the goal low, better to raise less money but actually surpass your goal, then be hustling at the end to try to fix like a $2,000, $3,000 round. Um, Secondly, I would never launch in the summer because it is kind of slow, but I guess it depends on your project. You know, some projects might do better in the summer. Um, I'm thinking shows or outdoor kind of uh, maybe music might do well in the summer. Um, Fall is largely a popular season for Kickstarter because everyone's back and kind of active. And I would say make sure that you get in contact with as many press as you can. I mean, contacting 300 people in the press is still not enough if you're hoping to get people there, because imagine you're going to have maybe one to five people respond to you from every 100 people that you contact.
0: Good to know. Very good to know. Um, Chandler, you had another question for um, Nyla. Uh,
2: Yeah, you actually had uh, two questions. But The first question is, uh, what has it been like well you you you've achieved a success on writer's blog, What excitement, and what has it been like with the success going on over there i
1: mean i think i heard I heard part of the question. I think the question is what has been the greatest success I think you've achieved with writer's blog I
0: mean, what, um, what has it been like for you to achieve the success on writer's blog?
1: Sorry, I didn't hear you again, Gil. What has been what?
0: Jay was asking you, what has it been like for you personally to achieve the Mm. success on Writer's Block?
1: Honestly, you know, a little, it's been bittersweet. You know, on one hand, I've been working with so many authors, which has been such a blessing, and I got to experience their art and kind of get involved in their world. And on the other hand, you know, for the last year and a half, it's been really hard for me to write my own stuff because I've been so creatively involved in other people's. So that's been something that I've really had to work with and uh, um, kind of push myself to write and create my own content because when you're working so heavily in other people's fiction or nonfiction or writing or you're editing, it's very hard to come home at the end of the day being involved all day with publishing and then try to write your own stuff. So that's definitely been, you know, on the other hand, receiving positive comments from writers and knowing that we're helping them and we're adding value to their lives and getting their books out there and making it a little bit easier for them than it would have been on their own. That's priceless. So I can't really complain. I feel very lucky.
2: Um, the second part of my question, uh, Gil, I just, you, you might have covered this already, Gil. I just want to know the, the definition of book accelerator. What is a book accelerator?
1: So, you know, we touched on this a little bit before. The idea is basically that we want to take a book, we want to be the first step in the publication process, and instead of you waiting around for three to five years to get a deal by an agent and a publisher if you're able to accomplish that, we want to just completely accelerate that process, get you in the market, get you in front of the right audience, and really test the potential of a manuscript. If the book's not going to take off, that's something that you'd rather know in the first year after you've written your book, in the first couple of months not wait three to five years to find out that that was a dud. So a lot of the idea is let's get the book in front of the audience, let's see if it takes off, and if it doesn't, let's write you another one. And if it does, then we're in a position where we can create additional opportunities for you by linking you up with a conventional publisher possibly or by just pushing you harder in the digital
0: market. Um, Nyla, oh, yeah. I'm sorry, go ahead, to.
2: So I, I'm just saying, uh, Gil, so that is, is you, you act almost like a a publishing agent or something like an agent, which is a great thing because most people don't have that resource, and that's I just want to say that's ex- exceptionally great because that really helps creative people. Because in the music industry, we have we need music accelerators because a lot of people can't get their stuff out. So I just I uh, really really appreciate you answering that question. Okay, Gail.
0: Oh, um, one of the th- one of the things um we only have a few more questions now because we may have to go. But one of the things that I'd like to know based on Jay's question, what is the timing um between the time a book says, Yes, Nyla, I like this book and I wanna uh get it out to the market between the time that they say yes to it and the time it actually launches in the marketplace, for the writer's block.
1: The most you know, the longest period we've ever had has been two and a half months. Um and that was because the book wasn't very edited, so the book rep wanted to work with the author and make sure that they were happy and they were at a point where they were satisfied. Um, it's usually a very fast process. I would say normally, by the time that a, from the time that a book rep chooses the book to so the time that it's actually published, is anywhere from four weeks to eight weeks.
0: Okay, that's good. Then it's a very short process, actually. Um, the other thing yeah. is, I'd like to know. What has it been like for you to actually leave your job and start your, your business? I know you were able to work out something with the company you were working for on this endeavor. Would you share with our audience that, uh, as a panel, you shared about uh, what, one of the things I loved was how you went from being in a Fortune 500 company, such as a Simon Schuster, I believe it was, and then venturing out on your own and getting their buy-in on it. Can you share with the audience that?
1: So we actually didn't we didn't work with the agency. So I worked at Simon & Schuster for a period of time. I was um, an intern at Simon & Schuster. It was an incredible experience. You know, I definitely thought about joining them afterward. I thought, I mean, I learned a significant amount while I was there. But after we kind of went off and, and we started Writer's Block, it was a lot more about creating an independent kind of accelerator where many conventional publishers could have the opportunity to kind of link up with authors. So we didn't okay. really partner with one agency. We didn't partner with one public, publishing house at all. A lot of the goal was to make sure that we had opportunity. Um, and now we're actually talking to another conventional publisher who's interested in a lot of our uh, young adult and children's books. So, I mean, I think we're somewhere between a literary agent and a publishing house. So it's mostly just to create as much opportunity as we can for different uh, for different authors. But I
0: don't think, like, we really didn't link up with one publisher at any point. Okay, and so what what has it been like for you to start your job and just leave your business, you know? What has it been like for you with that?
1: You know, honestly, I don't think I've always been a bit of a – I am very comfortable with risk um, as long as I believe in what I'm doing. Uh, You know, I think people don't realize that it's not very glamorous starting your own company. It's a lot of work and uh, a significant amount of sacrifice. But I think if you love what you're doing, you really don't have any regrets at any point.
0: (laughs) I think that brings us to Jay's next
2: question. Jay <laughs> yeah, is kind of in the same um, area. How does it feel to be an entrepreneur now? You know, I had
1: read a quote once, and I thought it was exactly the best way to describe entrepreneurship, and it was something along the lines of, you know, I'm not the CEO, I'm the janitor. And that's really how it feels. <laughs> you know, I think if you start your own company, you are doing everything in that company, and that means you are cleaning things up and you are getting yelled at, and you're also getting every so often some praise, but very rarely, the majority of the time, you're hearing a lot of constructive criticism, um, a lot of criticism that's not even constructive, uh, and you kind of learn (laughs) how to wade through those waters and how to decide which, uh, which piece of advice to take and which to ignore. You know, you have to just be true to your mission. It's definitely been much, much less glamorous than they show, I think, in the uh,
0: the Social Network movie. Wow. Well, no, the last question Jay and I both have for to you is totally off. This our very last one. You know, what is it, Nyla, that you are very passionate about as a cause or charity? I think I have a feeling. I think Jay does, too, but we want to hear it from you and why.
1: Yeah, so... I mean, I think that's interesting. I've been involved very largely with trying to um, mostly to get people to write through therapy, so uh, to use writing as a form of expression therapy to, uh, you know, poetry is actually pretty good for that. I happen to be an awful poet, so I'm not great at mentoring on poetry, but, you know, there's a couple organizations now that I'm getting becoming very intrigued by. Um, there's one that I heard of, Girls Write Now, which is mentoring um different women, young ladies, in writing and how to kind of express themselves through writing. I think writing has saved a lot of people just because they're able to get their words and their feelings down on the page. Um, for me, any kind of organizations that are involved there, I'm very heavily involved. I've definitely traveled with different um, – in college I was involved with Act, which we got to go to Argentina, and I even had a bit of a project there with one person, just a side project where I was trying to help her write uh, some of her – emotions after a traumatic experience, and that's something I would definitely want to pursue. If I had a little more time, I could definitely see myself becoming much more involved with um, writing, the connection between writing and therapy.
0: Well, and it's funny, because you know, Jay, I was thinking, and Nyla, I was thinking that you were going to say you, so it's funny. Mm-hmm. Um, so, thank you so much, Nyla. This has been eye-opening. We thank you for being part of our show today, and You know, would love for you to come back on either much later in the year or beginning of next year and see how Listen Gifts can honestly support Writer's Block as well.
1: It's been my pleasure. Mm
0: -hmm. Yes, it's been our pleasure as well. Um, It's been amazing, informative, and again, if you could tell people where to find your company online, it would be great. Yes, so just check
1: us out at writersblock.com with the Q. So it's just writers, W-R-I-T-E-R-S dot qcom My email address and everything is on there, so they can contact me directly.
0: And then my other question for you is, how can, uh, will you be at a panel or anything like that If people in the New York City area or California or any place can come and see you?
1: Not in the near future,
0: but if they follow me on Twitter, which is just
1: N-A-Y-I-A-I-S-M-S, that's the best way to find me. It's Naya-isms. Okay. So just Naya and isms.
0: Okay, can you say that one more time so our audience will get that one? Sure.
1: So it's Naya, N-A-Y-I-A, and then isms, so like things that Naya would say. Naya isms. No
0: no problem. All right, thank you so much, Naya, and it's been uh, just amazing talking with you today.
1: Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Have a
0: good one. You too. So, Jay, I mean, that was really what you call a really great interview. Wouldn't you say, sir?
2: Yes, it was. It was. It was very informative.
0: It, it, it really, really. Jay, now, come on. We have to get you up over there in Tokyo. You know, audience members, you know, we have to thank Jay for being on because it's very late right now in Tokyo. So Yes, yeah, so um, I, <clears throat> I
2: had a little technical problem. I apologize to to all, uh, all the listeners, but, uh, you know, technology, even though I'm in the greatest technology country there is, still <laughs> they have some little glitches.
0: <laughs> well, you know, Jay, one of the things we, we we had to go ahead and talk about some of the things early on, but really would love to talk about, you know, before we close out, Bing for schools launches with a roar. You know, the new, it's a very interesting thing that if Bing is used enough in the schools, It'll get uh, help them to rack up points for the Microsoft tablet by way of CNET. The they need to us by. What do you think about that?
2: Well, I think it's great that Microsoft is providing an opportunity for these schools and these kids to get their hand on a free service. It kind of makes. Yeah, I kind of want to go back to school. No, I mean
0: I want. I love to have. A I want too because tablet. you know you know I want that. I want that tablet. I especially want you know uh, the Lenovo tablet. I just saw it. You know. Uh, unfortunately, the one that I want is close to $2,000, so if they'd be more than happy, I'll rack up some points towards that, wouldn't you? <laughs>
2: I, this technology is just wonderful, and Microsoft, it just never seems to amaze me, you know. I mean, I remember a couple of shows back, we had this guy from Microsoft, and they're just really, really trying to help uh, educate America and, and get these kids on the ball, and it's just wonderful that Bill Gates have these programs to help um, these children, Um I can't say enough. Well, maybe,
0: well, maybe we should we should ask you know uh, Bill and Melinda Gates. We're out there asking. you. We'd love to have you come and be in support of our show because we really like what you're doing. Would you say that, Jay? I really do. And we we
2: we should definitely invite him on. And uh, we really like what he's doing. It's really helping to educate and get these kids up to speed. And we America needs that. You know, it's it's, it's a good it's a good thing. You know, with all the other things going on, this is a bright spot. You know, bright spot it in America. It so. absolutely
0: is. You know, Nyla was amazing because you know, you know my attitude. She hit the nail on the head. as someone in publishing to hear her say that? And then, as you know, Zaria just did that video about right. the writing. I, I, I'm just flabbergasted by it. it right. It, right. You know that. Well, you know how I feel about. Um, the fact that I think both traditional and non-traditional should be integrated because students who start out on computers, they have no patience, no respect for adults. They are just everything they want their way. And because of their parents are the young, they see nothing wrong with that, which, you know, generally nothing would be wrong with that, Jay. Generally right. nothing would be wrong with that. But, you know, like she said, I mean, this is coming from, uh, she's very young herself. So to say that this was scary for her, that's concerning.
2: Right. Right. That
0: is, that is <laughs> you know, she's very young. So to say that she's concerned about students and, you know, technology taking over too much, and she's saying that's scary. And in the context of which she said that was scary, that sends a shocking wave to me as well. You know what I mean?
2: Uh-huh.
0: You know, any thought? Any, any,
2: do you have any thoughts on that one, Jay? Yeah, I mean, that's it's very. I mean, she, she took a she took a leap of faith, and uh, to be young and in today's uh, with all this technology and all the stuff out here that's free for her to take that chance is uh, is amazing. Uh, one thing I I didn't get a chance to ask, you, and I would I would like to know what your thoughts are, with all the new reading tools, Gail, you know, like you know. You, right now, you don't have to read. You can have a computer read to you, or you can use speech programs, a recognition program, and you can talk and the computer types for you. It isn't, I mean, for people that are impaired, it's probably a good thing. But is this
0: good for our kids in education, you know? You that's have good- the part, that's, exactly. That's the question I was just posing to you, Jay. Like what she said, you know, that part that she said about it being very scary, that, the, te- the technology can do that for our kids Rather than our kids reading to them If you remember one of the things Gloria wrote for Listen and Give was You know, this is very concerning um, She said our that Can take a note and read it to a kid A bedtime story You know, think about right. it you have, a do- you have your daughter, Jelena I have three nieces I'm sitting there and you're sitting there reading and saying Oh, Jelena, this is, you know Let's say they're three again And they're reading a tablet to them Oh yeah, Daddy. I love the pages. They can't, you know, you can't turn the pages on a tablet.
2: <laughs>
0: right. Yeah. Let's try. Let's try to turn the pages. Let's go get about twenty tablets and try to turn it. You know. So I think you know, right. for me, I think it's very important that our books stay in print. When you go to a library, the wonders of those books around you. You know what we're trying to t- tell people and tell kids now. If you think about it, she talked about the heavy backpack. You know, you're talking about speech therapy right now. have you backpacked for what? You know, I, the best way for me to sum this up, the movie, The Internship, you got to go see it. It's where Vince Vaughn and Owen say to the students, standing on a building, they said you can't, and they were overlooking the beauty of this, the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco. They said you can't Google that. You couldn't Google that view from where they were. Wow. So why not have kids have a little bit of work to take to school and they've got to lift their books? By them lifting it, they realize the work they're creating. That's why kids. You heard um, even um, I would say the same thing as the audience, that the feel of the book, the, the accomplishment of knowing it's finished, the beginning to the end. Swiping so through a couple of pages on the, on the iPad, I'm sorry, you don't get the sense that you have finished it. I go back and forget where I put my hand at. Right. It's
2: you're on the thing. You know, right. I have a I have a bit of a scenario to share with you, Gail. You might get a kick out of this. Okay. Jelena, my daughter, um, last year she lost her book. So uh we went um and uh to the school today, uh well I didn't go, but um her auntie they went to the school to enroll her and they said, Well, where's the book? <laughs> so the book the book cost sixty dollars. So my auntie said, "Well, Jelena, you know, I'm not going to pay you sixty dollars, you know, and she had just got an allowance seventy dollars. So basically, Jelena, you're going to have to be responsible for this book because you lost it and you misplaced it. And that's the responsibility of having a book, and it's very important for kids to be responsible for their books to learn responsibility. It's not just a book; it's it's whole the whole point of carrying the book to school, being responsible for it, and the whole thing. So you lose that with, with." with these iPads and mini-pads and oh, well, Because all they have to do is
0: – yeah, that's so true, Jay. Now, I do have a question for you. I did get a kick out of that. Um, so she had to be responsible. I don't want to know why does she have to pay for a book for school anyway? Well, um, they give
2: you the book, and the parents – well, the parents really have to pay for it. If they said you lose the book, you, you know, the, since our economy – and we can't afford these books anymore in our schools. The schools can't afford to replace books anymore because there's no money. The monies are gone, and so basically, you know, if you lose something, you got to be responsible for it. So she has to, uh, be, you know.
0: <laughs> well, do you remember what we talked about this some, some time back when we spoke about the fact that there was a mother who gave her son a phone, and virtually the remember you know, all the rules she had for the phone, for the iPhone. I'm so in agreement with that. What it really came down to is if you lose it, lose it's ours. If you lose it, you get no other. And either way it turns around, it's ours until you can grow up and get a job and get your own. You know, and, and right. I, have to say, you know, I have to say this. Some parents, depending on economic level, just don't like what we're saying. If you're wealthy, you know, Warren Buffett, he taught his children the value of a dollar and a responsibility around it. So someone like Warren Buffett can do that, you uh, you know, I'm speaking to all of you parents, you can do it on any level. Children have to learn the value, because, you know, to the wealthy parents out there, you don't teach them the value of the dollar and the workforce, they lose something, they have to work for it and not give it to them again. What they will do is the money you leave them, they will also squander it, not manage it properly. Right. You know, these are things that we don't realize. We think, oh, how much? and, you know, when it, I was laughing the other day when I hear uh, kids, uh, even parents who are the age of us from anywhere from 25 to 45, oh, my mother was so mean, she abused me, she thanked me. Oh, please, did you turn out okay? Did you do very well? Yes. You're not abused. Please. Nowhere near abused. You know, so these are things I look at. I, th- I find them interesting. You know, there's a difference from being abused. Some people were frank with the belt. I know people are not going to like what I'm about to say. Sometimes some of these kids need it. I remember when it was a village. It Didn't matter your ethnicity or anything. You you could live if you were living in Poland. I have friends who are from Poland. If you did something wrong, you might get spanked by all of the neighbors first before you even got to your mom and dad's house.
2: Right.
0: You know. So it's really interesting. You know, we could go on about that, but what it comes really down to is it's not about feeding a child. It's not about any of that. It's about creating responsibility and values for for in general. And that and that America really realizes the importance of reading and writing. I love what she said about writing and therapy. You know? Oh, Jay, do you have any last words from Tokyo, my friend? Uh it's been it's been wonderful
2: here in Tokyo. Um uh it's just a lot of people,
0: <laughs> a lot of
2: people. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I want to come home. I don't know. I think this is a little bit – I know New York has a lot of people also, but I think this is a bit much. I think it's a little bit more, and then, you know, everybody's everywhere. So, you know, when I was on the subway, and I, and I remember when you invited, invited me to New York, there was a lot of people. But I could can, I can kind of deal with, with, with that, but this is – you it might have three or four or five more times people than New York. Everybody's going things. And there's an underground world here. So a lot of times you don't know what's going on upstairs. Because you're downstairs, and there's malls and all these things downstairs. You, you'll you never come up for air because it's a world underneath Tokyo, let alone um, the world that's above ground. So it's very interesting. It's really? Very interesting. So you mean
0: they, they build their malls under, underground?
2: Yes. And it's oh, huge. Like malls and malls and malls connected to malls underneath the ground because I guess they have to conserve space. So they have, they have the upper world, and then they have the underworld. And it's just it's open all day. It's just incredible.
0: I just I understand um, also that in Tokyo that there's no seats on the um, train. I don't know if I could deal with that one.
2: No, you you know you're not going to sit down too much. Um, well, oh, it depends. You know the the, the subway is, is is huge. It's called the metro metro, and it's, it's so it's just so it's so confusing because they have subways on top of subways, and it's just. It's incredible. Um, I mean, they have different level, at least ten different lines, ten or twelve different lines, and and different parts of t- of town. It's incredible too because they right now I'm in uh, Shinjuku. That's where I'm at right now. But that's a whole city by itself. It's almost like the city is a whole state. The city of Tokyo is like the whole state, <laughs> the whole state opposed to a city because you got these little sections that are cities within cities. Which uh it's pretty incredible and um and they use they, they use the public transit is incredible because you do not want to ride in a taxi here opposed to New York. You know, the taxi driver's a little bit you know more fair. Here they will take you around and you'll go on a scenic tour and you wouldn't even know it. <laughs>
0: know. Well, I, I, tell so. you, I tell you I tell <laughs> you, i I get what you're saying. <laughs> Well, on that note, Jay, we are at the end of this show, and this has been an amazing, amazing show. Um, I'm very excited. We haven't been on in a while, and um, we're back, guys. We are absolutely back. So if you're also interested in Bing for Schools, uh, it's www.bing.com forward slash schools forward slash. And thank you so, so much, Jay. And uh Jay, will we where will you be next week when we uh come in on the radio? Can you share that with our
2: audience? Um hopefully I'll I will be in Osaka. Uh I think I might be there. And if I if I'm not, I will be back in Nagoya. So either okay. be Osaka or Nagoya. And uh and Aligato, Domo Aligato to you, Gail from Tokyo. <laughs> no Paul and,
0: and Jay, when do you come back to the States?
2: I'll be back in October.
0: Oh wow! We thought you were coming back to see us at the end of August, sir.
2: Well, uh, it, it kind of uh, we got uh, they kind of liking us out here, so they gave us some uh, extra, extra, some extra dates that were
0: unexpected. Do you, do you think? You, do you think you'll be coming back home? at All you know, uh, audience, you may not see Jay. I have a funny feeling he may leave us and stay in Japan.
2: Oh uh, no, no! I, I can't wait. I love, I love the USA. I can't wait to get home. <laughs> I'm gonna hightail tell yeah, I'm gonna high out of here. Well with that said, uh, Japan on yeah, yeah, the I,
0: next I plane. Japan.
2: Next I'm on the next plane, plane home. As soon as I can get soon as I can get released from uh <laughs> get
0: released. Well, you know, we want to make one announcement for Jay Logan, and that is as we play the music going out, we want you all to know this is from Jay Logan and his band Pat and Leather. And please go check out Patent Leather, where, Jay? Patent Leather at loungerenowned.com,
2: or even you can even go to YouTube and make a search for Patent Leather, P-A-T-T-O-N-L-E-A-T-H-A.
0: Okay, and we're going to leave out with uh, treasure. I think, and I guess Jay will be considered Japanese treasure. Have a great day, Jay. Take care. Thank you,